Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May. Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com, the podcast that explores social conflict and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Laura May, and today I have with me Dr. Morgan Lecourt-Juratic, postdoctoral researcher at Aarhus University in Denmark. She recently defended her PhD at the European University Institute in Florence, Italy, and her research interests include party competition, political behavior, and people's support for democracy. So welcome, Morgan. Thanks a lot, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about these topics with you. I feel like the opportunity is all mine and that of our listeners, so we're, we're lucky to have you with us today. And so I want to jump straight in and ask you about your doctoral research that you've just finished and graduated from last week as we record this. So congratulations again. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> because you researched the effects of party polarization on electoral participation. Firstly, what does that mean? So um, party polarization, as it happened in Europe, so basically. We just experienced in the past 20 years, a lot of extreme parties emerging. So when you think about, yeah, the ISD in Germany, like it used to be not a thing to have a radical right party in Germany to be allowed. And then they emerge again in the past years. So this kind of polarization and then finding is, does that actually make people want to participate more in elections or, or not at all? So that's basically what this is all about. Okay. And so when you talk about participating in elections, do you mean as in voting or as in running for office? Like what actually does that mean? No, basically turnout. Like does that motivate people to show up in elections and vote? Right. And what led you there? Like why did you decide to dedicate years of your life to researching this and to finding this out? Tell me why. Yes. (laughs) So basically it all started from this observation that in the early 2000 Europe, we had quite established party systems. So with two mainstream parties competing and alternating in power for years. And then that has changed quite a bit in the past years. So when you see the AfD or when you think about on the other side of the political spectrum, so on the radical left, after the economic crisis, you've seen Podemos in Spain emerging. So we did observe a lot of this happening in European multi-party systems and, and that is a quite a striking change. And then I think I related also to what has been going on a lot in the US. So we do talk a lot about polarization in the US and its consequences. And there is big debate about is that good news or bad news for democracy. So we tend to focus a lot on the potential dangers this polarization has for democracy. So. It feels that people are becoming quite opposed to each other, and that is a bad consequence for democracy. But then last American elections, we have seen the highest turnouts as well in the past 50 years. So could polarization actually be a good thing for democracy and and revive a bit the electorate? Because having an active electorate is important for, for our system to work. So having this debate in mind, and observing that a different kind of polarization was happening in Europe too, what's, what, what's going on? Is that good or bad news for, for the working of our democracies? Mm. And was there a personal element for you? Like, were you living in one of these countries that was affected by increasing polarization? 
So I'm, I come from France and we do, as any other European countries experience polarization. And I feel, I mean, like one of my first personal political memories, actually, when Le Pen uh, made it to the second round of French elections, so the radical right coming to yeah the second round of elections for the first time. And I remember the huge protests going on to say this is uh, not possible as a reaction to to this sudden sudden urge of of the radical right, so that is related to this. And then, I think polarization in France too is, is a big thing at the moment. So, yeah, we're really wondering what could be the consequences of that. So, I guess that all comes from there in a way. And so, if I understand correctly, basically the idea is you get all these extreme parties popping up. They're moving away from each other to various ends of various spectrums. Mm -hmm. And then people want to come and vote more so they can have their say. Yeah, exactly. So if you think about polarization as this like more extreme offers, you could see it as an opportunity in a way. So you have more options to choose from and that should motivate people to participate because now they feel, oh, now I have a good option for me that represents me that used to not be there before. So that could be the positive side of it. So I have more choice now. Also, the way that uh, polarization could mobilize people is that it, it has this, it clarifies a bit what are the offers. If you have more extreme parties, then it's, it's clear, okay, they are much different compared to the others. So that clarifies a bit the offers and that should help the people who usually do not really understand or parties overlap. Okay. I do not really get what's the difference between them. Then that should motivate these people to say, okay, I have clear information that now I have this extreme offer. So that should be the way it mobilizes people. So parties are kind of going from this amorphous blob of ideas, which I don't really get and maybe don't really represent me to these kind of extreme niche parties that really have my particular cause at their mm-hmm. centre. Yeah, well, in so, the case of AFD, not my particular cause, but <laughs> as some other person, yeah. Yeah. No, no, exactly. So clarifying a bit, okay, now I have a real alternative that I can vote for. So that that would be a bit the mechanism behind it. And then there's this other mechanism that does does not correspond to the ideal way of uh, we think about how democracy should work. And it's more that people turn out more because actually they have strong feelings about this party and their opponents and their leg. They will do everything they can to prevent the other party to access power, right? So that, that is more the other side of the coin that is not so much related to policy offers or ideological position, but more to this effective component. And that is far from related to a more rational way of making a voting decision. So that's, that would be the other side of the coin. It's like when we hear comparisons between US politics, where it's obviously really clearly Democrats versus Republicans, and sports team, where it's like, oh, I want to be on the winning team. I want to crush the opponents. This is definitely a healthy way to run a country. But, I mean, you studied Europe, though, more than the US. And I'm just really curious. I mean, what makes Europe particularly interesting to study in this context? Yeah, so Europe is interesting for several reasons, but it's mainly because compared to the US, we have really this multi-party systems compared to the US two-party system. So one argument, again, is that polarization should clarify a bit these political alternatives. 
And the US, it, it is pretty clear, right? So if you have the Republican Party moving away from the Democratic Party, it's pretty clear how different they are and there's no option. To, it's either or. So it, it is pretty clear what are the alternatives. But when you have such as in European multi-party systems, so many parties that compete, those polarization really help to clarify these alternatives. Like it's not, it's not for sure, right? It could actually be more confusing if you have all kinds of party offers in all directions. The additional thing with the European party system and multi-party system is that parties do not compete only on one mega issue left, right? But they compete on economic issues, on more societal issues. And sometimes these do not clearly overlap on one single left-right axis. Like some parties are conservative economically and then conservative on uh, the more societal issues, on immigration. But others are conservative on the societal issues and liberal on the economic issues. So all of that makes a bit this clarifying mechanism. Does that really happen in Europe? So that was why it was so interesting to see. The second thing that makes Europe interesting, again, as opposed to the US, is that for this negative effect of particularization to happen so that it increases more groups, citizens' group division, and makes people vote more for this reason than for the ideological positions of parties, then it's supposed that you have a strong uh, partisan to begin with. And, and in the US, again, it's pretty clear. So people self-identify quite quickly as Republican or Democrat. But if you ask in Europe, anyone, do you feel closer to any party? There's at least a good third and maybe more often half of them that say, no, I don't feel close to any party in particular. So that could mean that maybe this negative effects of polarization do not really happen as much in Europe compared to the US. So those are the two main reasons why it's interesting to look a, a bit more what happens in multi-party systems compared to two-party systems. Mm. And as you were talking about the European party systems where you've kind of got people all over the show, right? So rather mm -hmm. than one line, you've got a constellation of parties. Mm -hmm. Do one-issue parties fall into this as well? I mean, can a one-issue party say, I mean, we often see marijuana parties, right, and they're a mm -hmm. one-issue party. They're like, we're going to campaign for legalisation of marijuana. Mm -hmm. Do they also polarise in the same way? So I guess that's a bit more tricky in that sense that you also have the single-issue party or you have also the parties that are more the owner of some issues. So if you think about the Green Party, they're really known for their position on green policies. But they're all part of this polarization system. So you have also this single offer party. So it's really unclear how, how does that work for citizens? Do they perceive that as an alternative or they rather go for parties that compete all across the issue. So that adds to the complexity of the party systems when you have this single issue party. Yes. I mean, as you were talking about this, being a, a Brexit nerd, it struck mm -hmm. me that one of the axes along which parties compete is that of Euroscepticism. So whether yeah. people are pro-EU or anti-EU, you were doing your PhD over a very tumultuous time in Europe from the Brexit referendum through the UK exiting. And so you will have seen mm -hmm. a lot going on here in terms of which way parties go or polarize along this axis. I mean, how did that play out? What did that look like? So it's interesting because, yeah, the Brexit issue, of course, was 
very critical in the UK. And if there is another country where there is one axis of competition and a single issue where parties compete, it really would be the UK, where you show that the main structural issue was this Brexit issue for pro and against Brexit. So that is clearly salient. When you look at other countries in the EU, you do have a rising conflict of parties on this specific EU issue. And there again, it's unclear how does that affect citizens' attitudes towards the EU. So again, you could think that, okay, this clarifies a bit and you would see the surge of uh, Eurosceptic views also among citizens. But then it seems that it's not really the case. Actually, this polarization might be confusing a bit more citizens on the issue in a multi-party system. So it's not that they become Eurosceptic, but they become more mixed about their views on the EU issue. So beyond the UK, I guess, where it is pretty straightforward that you have a clear polarization of attitudes towards the EU following parties polarization, it's not necessarily the case across EU countries. It's more that as a result, uh, citizens become much more mixed about this. That's really interesting because I can understand that if I have a whole bunch of concerns, so say that, for example, I'm really into train infrastructure and I'm anti-immigration and I want lots of really good public education, I want people on vocational trades. By the way, I'm obviously not anti-immigration, I'm a migrant, <laughs> but I've got this whole other mixed bag and I found this one party that seems to fit those things, but then they're really pro-EU. I'm like, all right, okay, well, I'm going to be listening to this party, right? They're the closest mm-hmm. I've got. Is that sort of how it works? Yeah, basically. So the EU issue is a bit more peculiar compared to any issue because it is even more complex. So parties that you know their position on some issues, then you would trust them to have the right position on the EU issue, even if you don't know enough about the EU. So you would kind of follow the party queue. But it doesn't seem to be the case, actually, because people do not blindly follow this Eurosceptic trend at all, but it's more like mixed. There is a lot of people who say, I have neither good or bad opinion about the EU that don't really follow this Eurosceptic queue at play. So I guess that's that's what really happens with this EU issue in particular. Yeah, I, I suppose having always that Brexit head on, I think, oh, this issue is so, so salient. It's sort of that thing which helps structures everything else, but it sounds mm-hmm. like that's not the case on mainland Europe. Maybe there's exceptions for Hungary, Poland, I don't, I don't know, but that's really interesting. But I wanted to circle back for a moment because earlier you were talking a bit about this idea of affective polarization because you mentioned polarization of parties as parties mm-hmm. moving away from each other. And you mentioned affective polarization as the actual people mm-hmm. feeling things towards each other. And so what kinds of emotions popped up in your research? What seemed relevant? So when you look at affective polarization, what you would expect, the type of emotions you would expect from people are really hate, anger, or even disgust towards your political opponents. Those would be the emotion you would be expecting if you would observe more affective polarization among citizens. But what happens is that while doing the research, actually that was not the main thing, the main emotions that I observed. And that's I did through by observing people's reaction to party polarization in focus group discussions. So 
people with very different views of politics talking together and reacting to party polarization, they did not react with more anger, hate, or disgust towards their political opponents in the group or outside towards the parties. What What's actually very striking is that there were two other emotions, type of emotions that were very salient as a reaction to party polarization. The first one is actually fear and anxiety. And this was particularly salient when the discussion was about party polarization on more societal issues. So if you take immigration, for example. And their citizens' reaction were a bit like, okay, uh, parties are really playing with people's fear on these issues to make us turn out. And I think that was actually very interesting because in works of political psychology, fear and anxiety are usually not associated at all with activism or electoral participation. But that was really one type of emotions that were really salient in group discussion, especially polarization on migration. And then the second type of emotions, and that was a bit all across different groups, was a form of indifference. And it was not hate towards your opponent's party, but actually even not caring about all other all parties without distinction that it's your opponent party or your own. So undistinguished disgust or indifference towards all parties. And that was not expected, actually. There was really expected more this affective polarization going on, but no. There is this strong indifference as a reaction to party being more divided. That is so interesting because I'm a bit of a nerd for emotions in politics myself, right? And what you've just said is so different to what I observed in the UK context. And it's unsurprising because, of course, emotions are, are cultural and culturally contingent and this is a very different circumstance. But I found it really fascinating that you described fear and anxiety around social issues such as migration. When I did focus groups with Brexiteers, I heard a lot of anxiety, yes, but that, that leading to compassion, right, mm -hmm. for both immigrants and for people who they saw as, as more British and heavy inverted commas because people who are listening can't see me but doing inverted commas. And then this compassion in turn kind of led to a backlash in activism. And... Yeah, I mean, the only apathy that I encountered was apathy towards victims. So either there was compassion or there was apathy towards victims. It's so interesting to me that you had these other very different findings. Before I was talking about this idea of US politics as being sports teams, and it was kind of similar in, in Brexit as well. There was a lot of like enthusiastic schadenfreude when the vote came down with people being like, hey, suck it, we won. But it sounds like these things were totally absent from these European contexts in which you did your focus scripts, which is absolutely fascinating. So yeah, my hunch is that among any European countries, if I may still integrate UK in, in a European country. It's allowed. So yeah, so that might be closer to a classical two-party system mm -hmm. and on one single dimension, so closer to the party competition you have in the US. So, mm -hmm. so my hunch is that that could be related. So again, it's clear who is your camp and the other camp, who is a Brexiter and who is not, compared to other European multi-party multi -party systems. So that, that would be my hunch of what's going on here. Great. And the other part of your research was, of course, the electoral participation element. So mm -hmm. what were your findings with these fearful people, these apathetic people or indifferent people? What did that actually imply for electoral participation? Because I'm wondering if maybe 
anxiety and apathy is more desirable than schadenfreude and rage for a democracy. Yeah, and that's the whole story. So on the one hand, you could think, okay, so it's good for democracy. We don't have so much affected polarization and people do not participate more because of this reasons. But what I find is not so good either in a different way. So I do find experimentally that party polarization needs to more indifference and it does not have any effect on participation. So, so we don't know exactly, like, it, it doesn't decrease or increase electoral turnout. But the bad thing about if people more and more as a result of party polarization become more indifference or dislike all parties, what about their trust for the system, the way it works? What about the support for representative democracy? That could be, on the long run, pretty bad news, actually, for the functioning of our representative democracy. So I don't have a very optimistic result and findings about participation. Yeah, this idea, I think, of people becoming more indifferent to the system or having less trust in the system is really salient, especially when we see demagogues really saying that I will represent the people who voted for me and not represent the whole country or the whole constituency. And so when you've got, you know, these tiny little parties and you've got one saying, well, I'll represent just people who voted for me and every other interest gets left in the dust. I could, I wouldn't trust that system probably myself. Mm -hmm. I'd be like, well, I'll just have to wait for my turn. And then it becomes quite, quite toxic for your belief in democracy and for, probably for society itself, I should imagine. Yeah, because on the one hand, you have all these people becoming more and more indifferent and not trusting the system and then not participating anymore. And the only ones that are still participating are those more maybe effectively polarized that represent a minority of the people and then push the system even further away. So it could be a, a vicious circle where we have more dropout from those people who are not so partisan and who become more indifferent or disgusted by all parties, regardless of the position, while you have still the most extreme that still participate and maintain and even make the system even more polarized on the long run. So that could be not too optimistic again. Yeah. And it's kind of ironic, right? Because if these demagogues or these really highly politicized or rather polarized parties with maybe extreme views, you know, they'll often claim, oh, we're representing a silent majority. But actually, when those parties gain power and only represent a niche interest, they are creating the silent majority because everyone mm -hmm. else is becoming indifferent and losing trust in them and in the system. So, yeah, it's it's kind of ironic, right? That they're, they're yeah. the problem. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> no, it sounds like a really fascinating project that you did and this work that you continue to do. Speaking of which, what are you working on now? So now that I moved so much into yeah, these questions about what does that mean for support for democracy and uh, implication for citizen support for democracy, I started working on this postdoc project called the Dem Norm, where we look at these questions. I still focus a lot on elites' responsibility in harming or changing support for democracy among citizens. And here we have still this puzzle in mind. So when you ask citizens directly, they all seem to support democracy quite strikingly. And that hasn't changed in the past 20 years. But when you look at political events of, for example, a group of people storming the capital in the US, that's not 
properly what you call a democratic behavior, you know, system. And we see all these kind of events happening in established democracies. So we really wonder, okay, what's going on? And maybe support for democracy is actually more of a social norm than a deep down felt value, meaning that it would be more sensitive to what you think your friends do or think about democracy or sensitive to changes in what your political elites are saying are the boundaries of democracy. So yeah, that's basically the the project we're working on now, and it's just starting, actually. Amazing. It sounds a bit like we say we believe in democracy because that's a social thing, but deep down we're all little mini authoritarians or mini communists or what have you. Is that how it's looking at the stage? So... I'm not saying that no one is deep down supporting democracy and I think this is still the case, but uh, when you just ask directly, do you support for democracy? Everyone will say, yeah, of course we do. But then when you dig a bit more into that and if you suddenly have your friends or networks or group of partisans that do something that is not really considered democratic or you believe that they don't think it is that important to support some aspect of democracy, then uh, you would quickly change and follow whatever your network is doing compared to sticking to a strong value of democratic support. That's the idea behind that. And so earlier you mentioned this idea of the storming of the Capitol building as an example of an anti-democratic thing, right? An anti-democratic action. What are some of the other ones you've seen or you've encountered going on? I asked because a couple of weeks ago I spoke mm-hmm. with Ben Abrams about this idea of the rise of the masses and increasing mm-hmm. protest movements. And I mean, sure, obviously I was speaking to a French person and I think about all the protests in the streets of Paris and in France more broadly about pension ages or mm-hmm. industrial rights and things like that. And so those I see myself perhaps as an expression of mm-hmm. at least people power, if not democracy, mm-hmm. right? Like people are really going out there and, and demanding this. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, other than this example of the storming of the Capitol building, which is really obviously like an yeah. insurrection, right? Like, yeah. yeah, I'm wondering what are these other uprisings and movements mm-hmm. you would actually consider being against democratic mm-hmm. norms? So there are clear examples. So storming the Capitol is a clear undemocratic behavior when you increasingly contest elections results as well, or you would mobilize against contested or close election result of you barely losing, that could also be considered like clear violation of what is democratic or not. And then it all depends a bit on the norms and the boundaries. Like, is it okay in democracy? How do people talk about it? Is it okay in a democracy to be violent against the police when you strike? Is it okay to be violent against different properties? Is it okay to block the streets in a democracy? And all of this, I guess you could argue that they start to be more contested or more not so clear-cut, democratic and undemocratic. And this is where I think elite's role is really important in defining, okay, what are the boundaries? What have we always done that is democratic? If you start allowing for this more gray area action, does that spill over to more like clear democratic violation? How do elites themselves have a role in really defining the boundaries of democracies? And how does that influence people's views of what is acceptable or not acceptable to do in democracies? 
as you're talking, I'm reminded of Australia <laughs> because later this year there's going to be a referendum mm-hmm. about the inclusion of what's known as the voice. A permanent representation of Australian Aboriginal peoples within Parliament to obviously get input on those issues that affect them. And so already you see around the referendum this idea of having the body within Parliament as not being democratic. And so this whole idea of what democracy is and isn't is currently getting underway in Australia. And I'll be very curious. I am hope I'm allowed to vote this year. Like last time there was a vote, they banned everyone overseas from voting, which I found very upsetting, but luckily mm-hmm. I was in Australia. But I'll be really curious to see, given the nature of these discussions around whether it's democratic or not, if there will be any fallout in the wake mm-hmm. of what happened obviously in the US and obviously Australia also being a Murdoch (laughs) media dominated country so that'll be I think really something to keep an eye on with that said I avoid studying Australian politics myself it's too close (laughs) someone else someone else could listen to this podcast and go hmm that's a great idea for a study pretty please and then send it to me (laughs) there is a research product for someone else (laughs) exactly (laughs) we're just giving them away for free now this is great this is great and so What can we take away from all of this? What are the implications of your research? What should we do as well (laughs) as practitioners, as people, as, you know, people who may not hold democratic values deep in our hearts, but at least we say we do? What are the implications? So I do have pretty gloomy results from my dissertation, but I don't think it's an Oscars. And one thing is we do focus a lot on specific parts of the population. So the most like partisans, activists, and These are the ones we see on the news and I get that. And sometimes their behavior can be quite shocking. So I I see why we focus so much on them. But then I really think we should also look at people's reactions who are not particularly partisan or or extreme, because these also have very important implications for, for democracy and democratic support, probably. So I think we should pay a bit more attention to this people's reaction as well. And I think there you could uh, really see that they could be convinced back again by uh, a healthy party competition. And I think elected elites and politicians really underestimate how people perceive these polarization as strategies, but not so much as genuine political alternatives. So we have this need to make a coalition at the end of the day after elections. People perceive that, and they are very conscious that there needs to be some kind of consensus in our multi-party system, because in most of our system, we need to have a coalition between these parties at the end of the day. So when one, uh, during the campaign, they are offering this very polarized offer, but then the next week they have to agree with each other. It's really perceived like a non-honest strategy from parties to behave like this. And there is some demand for more consensus. So it should also be aware that there is this demand and people will be aware that this is not a genuine party offer. So I think more could be done and parties should be partially aware of their responsibility in creating these dynamics. It's like you say really extreme stuff to capture an audience and you have to immediately back down the moment you get into power. Yeah, exactly. So most of our multi-party system needs to find a government, a consensus of some kind. In Belgium, for many years, there was the, I think, unofficial quotum that I can't mm-hmm. say it. I, I, I said it before we started recording, I can't pronounce any French, whereby parties wouldn't form coalitions with the really hardcore racist mm-hmm. right wing. No. 
And then as you've seen that wing gain a lot more mm-hmm. power, they've actually had to drop that and start forming coalitions in different ways. And of course, you know, everyone has to sort of step down their views because for democracy, yeah, we do need at least a measure of consensus. Mm-hmm. So I can see that that would be challenging and in the case of Belgium, potentially quite problematic <laughs> as someone who's been an immigrant in Belgium. But anyway, and I'm going to ask you really a cheeky question because I mentioned Australia before. What's your take on compulsory voting? Democratic, non-democratic? Okay. (laughs) I think, so maybe it's not so much related to my specific research, but I think compulsory voting would be quite democratic in my view. So to be sure that we don't get the over-representation of specific groups. Actually, I've read some research recently that having compulsory voting was making people feel more involved overall in the system. So it has beneficial effects, I think, that we should think about as well. Yeah, I think that could have good consequences for the way our representative democracies work, actually. So that's my hot take on compulsory voting. I love <laughs> And I, mean, I will say, as a le- another lesson from Australia, as long as you have a barbecue or the whatever is relevant <laughs> in your country, voting day sausage, I think you'll be fine. Yep. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today, Morgan. And for those who are interested in learning more about your work, where can they find you? So I guess the easiest way would be on Twitter, actually, where I try to publish how the research is going and the findings in quick ways. So find me on Twitter and then on my website to find more on my work and ongoing projects. I can vouch for your Twitter. It's how I found your work. So clearly that's effective. (laughs) And I'll include both the links in the podcast description. So again, Morgan, thank you so much for joining me today. And until next time, this is Laura May with the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com products and services, please visit us at www.mediate.com.